Well, everybody, thank you very much for listening in. Appreciate your time. Um, before we get started on day eight of my trip through Israel, I want to make a shameless plug for my new YouTube channel. I mentioned it in a past episode, but I want to mention it just every so often so I get everybody, just in case someone hasn't heard about it. Um, I started a new YouTube channel. It's different than this podcast. It's still me. It's still Theology and Apologetics. Um, slightly different episodes, obviously. Like You're not going to go find Trip to Israel video style. Um, these are just like anywhere between five and 30 minutes, no longer than 30. I'm trying to keep them between like 10 and 15, um, on average, but you know, every once in a while you have an outlier five minute or 30 minute one, um, just like shorter content that I think people would enjoy with video. Sometimes there's pictures or little graphics. It's really not overly produced by any means, but I'm just trying to post those once a week for people that use YouTube more often than anything else. Whether you use YouTube or not, a subscribe takes you like 30 seconds and really, really would help me out a lot. Um, So I'd appreciate that. Another thing you can do to support besides listening, which I just really does mean a lot on whatever uh, platform you're listening on, um, they have like ratings. And if you could rate this podcast, that would be absolutely huge. Really helps to get in front of more people and uh, any sites that might monetize. It helps that as well. So like Spotify, um, you know, it just, you can go to like the truth be told page and right at the top, there's like a star and you click the star and it'll have you rank it one through five. So if you click the five, that would be awesome. It'd really help me out a ton. Um, and I think other streaming platforms have similar things. So anyways, um, if you found any of this content valuable, that's just a few ways that you can really, really help, um, get this in front of other people. And it's not, the end of the world. If you don't, I like, honestly, if one person listened, I probably still do it because I get so much out of just preparing these episodes and, and recording them. And, um, I I think I've benefited more than probably most people. So it's not like I'm going to stop doing it, but it is motivating. It is encouraging when I see that people are listening and responding to things that I'm, I'm putting out. So I would really, really appreciate that. Also, you can just do the classic, like share, comment, everything. All right, that's too much time for self-promotion, two minutes and 23 seconds. So we're going to get into today's episode, which, like I said earlier, is day eight of my trip through Israel, and this was a pretty cool one. We went on this day to, well, the first thing we did was went to Caesarea Philippi, and it's a name that you probably heard from biblical study before. Um, It's most um, famous from the section in Matthew chapter 16. Um, what happens here is, um, you get Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, which is kind of a, a really big deal. And then Christ's famous statement of, um, the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. So we're going to read through some of that section, but also I'm going to tell you about like the landscape and the, the archeological stuff that happens or happened at this place. And we're going to go through the rest of the day, which is Caesarea Philippi, Dan, and the Syrian border. So those are the things that we're going to go through today. And it's it's a lot. So let's get started. So we got on the bus and went north because that's where Caesarea Philippi is. And this was like the farthest north we would be going at any point in this trip. It's almost the farthest north you can actually even really go. Um, so it's north of the Sea of Galilee, almost almost directly north. And it's kind of, it's not a bummer at all because it was really cool to see. But like it's almost level with Tyre. 
Um, and I, it would have been really cool to see tire, uh, while I was in this area, like to be only so many miles from it and then not get to see it is, you know, that's kind of frustrating, but you know, tire is also in Lebanon. So it's a whole nother thing to try and get across that border. Um, but yeah, so it's level with Tyre, which is right along the Mediterranean. So north of Galilee, uh, east of Tyre, and then like south of Damascus. And um, yeah, so that's that's kind of where we were in the, the northern region of Israel. And we'd be in at Dan after this, which is right very, very close to Caesarea Philippi as well. And these were the two northernmost places that we went while we were here. Uh, when the Bible says t- uh, Dan to Beersheba, it's talking about the very far north all the way to the very far south. And so we could not possibly go more north in biblical Israel than we did this day. And that was pretty cool. But at Caesarea Philippi, uh, essentially, you go into what's kind of like a, a park, like all the parks. It's like a mix between historical park and nature park, um, preserved either way. But it was very cloudy that day, which we were grateful for because the sun wasn't beating down. This was like one of the more beautiful days, which was interesting because in most places that we went, there was always somewhere where we were going to go that you had to have pants on. That sounds so dumb. Uh, Let me explain. (laughs) Let me explain. Um, when When you went to like a church or something, um, you had to have, you couldn't wear shorts. <laughs> oh man, I'm so sorry. So you had to have pants on wherever you went, but whether you wore shorts or not depended on if you were like going into a place that, um, like maybe the Catholic people or the Jewish people saw as like a holy place, you were going to be wearing pants, covering your knees. You're not wearing open toed sandals. You're not, you know, women are going to cover their shoulders. We never had to go into a place. I think where women covered their hair. Um, men couldn't wear hats inside these places. So a lot of days it was like, well, just it, even though it's going to be hot, it makes sense to wear pants because one of the places along the way, we're going to have to wear long pants for Caesarea Philippi. Um, we're all outdoors pretty much the whole day. And so we could wear shorts. So this is one of the few days I got to wear shorts and yet it really wasn't that hot. So, you know, it's fine. It wasn't cold either. Um, but I just, I don't know. I think in all my pictures, I'm like, man, you look so goofy with shorts on. You should have just worn pants that day too. But hindsight's 2020. But we get there and we went for a little bit of a walk um, up to the main site here. And I just want to read um, this section in, in scripture so that we can get a feel for what happens biblically here. Um, and that I think that will help with going through the site itself. So in verse 13 of Matthew 16... It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And this is an important question, but it becomes more important when you understand where they are. So in this district, they're not quite maybe at Caesarea Philippi yet, but they're kind of on the way. And archaeologically, there's this temple here. It's called the Omri Temple. And this would have been a temple to Caesar. Um, Caesar worship was a huge thing in the Roman empire. He was the son of God. And so this was, um, you know, these were impressive fortress level, just 
really tall and immaculate and ornate buildings. And so you can imagine they're passing by on the road to Caesarea Philippi. They enter into this district and they cross over this this Omrit temple uh, to what the Roman Empire would say is the Son of God. And Jesus asked them, who do they say that the Son of Man is? They, they say that Caesar is God, but who do they say that I am? And obviously the Jewish people don't say that Caesar is God, um, but the, the Gentiles certainly do. And so he asked them, this is almost like an identity question, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And almost, I mean, people imagine that like they're almost underneath the shadow of this temple of Augustus. And you can kind of paint the picture of like Peter boldly saying like right under this temple, looking Christ in the eyes and saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And so you've got this incredible moment where not only is it impressive that Peter would proclaim such a thing, um, you know, they've kind of danced around the subject for a while, but to proclaim it right here in the face of this like abject paganism and evil, this, this Caesar worship where Caesar is portrayed as God, Peter is rejecting this idea and saying, no, the son of the living God is standing right in front of me. So this is, this is incredibly important when you get the, the landscape um, kind of in your head, because these are things that they're seeing, that they are, you know, they might provoke conversation as they go. Otherwise, this could just be a conversation that kind of just comes up. And why would it come up? And so potentially they think that um, a big reason why this conversation is happening here is because of all these temples that are to Caesar in this area. And so when you get into Caesarea, so um, Caesarea Philippi, it's, it's named after Caesar. So even the town name itself is um, kind of a tribute to Caesar. And then Philippi uh, harkens back to Herod Philip, which is one of the Tetrarchs, son of Herod the Great, and uh, he named it after himself. And so not only do you have uh, Gentile paganism, but you have almost like evil kings that are really leading Israel in the wrong direction as well, um, kind of symbolized in this town. And I, I think you see that both are things that Christ was directly opposed to. Not only the Gentile um, pagan mindset, but also he challenged constantly the rulership of um, Israel and Judea. So um, just very prominent things to think about there. So when we went into the park a little bit deeper, you get to this this place where there's a huge red cliff face. So you're walking through trees and then suddenly just out of nowhere, this giant cliff face just rises in front of you and it's hundreds of feet high. And in this cliff face, there is a giant. So off to the left, you have this giant hole, almost like a, like a dragon, just like swiped a huge part of the rock out. And it looks like a cave and this cave used to be filled with water. It was one of the sources of the Jordan River. And um, there's still, I mean, waters from the Jordan. There are still sources of the Jordan River there. It just doesn't quite flow out of this cave. Our guide said there were earthquakes and 
certain things that happened later on after this this time uh, from the Bible in Caesarea Philippi that stopped off the water from flowing here. But there was a huge, deep pool going all the way down into the earth. And this place was used for um, the worship of the god Pan. And that's why um, even today this place is called Benias or Panias. Um, it was called Panias with a P after the god Pan. And then when uh, Muslims came in later, they had a hard time pronouncing the P. And so they called it Benias. And now um, that's why on signs you'll walk by and it's like it just says Benias rather than Caesarea Philippi. So one of the few places that it's known to be the place that it is listed as in the Bible. The history is very clear on that. The archaeology is very clear on that. But the name is different. Some places you go to, like uh, Magdala that we went to yesterday, and it's it's the same. But some places are a little bit different. So you've got this huge cliff face with this cave-like thing just absolutely ripped out of the rocks where water would have been. And to the right of that, you have um, some indentations in the rock where they would have set up idols and there are inscriptions all along the the wall there and you can get up really really close like right into the cave almost Um, there's a fence there so you can't go all the way in but it's it's deep I mean it's probably maybe maybe 50 feet to 100 maybe more than that probably like 100 feet deep into this cave and it used to go a lot deeper and it would just well up from underneath and this was known as the gates of Hades um, at this time and what would happen is they would go so it's kind of laid out right in a line so you've got this cave you have recesses in the wall to the right of that where the the idols would have been set up to the right of that there was like a temple complex and to the right of that there was like a, a platform and what would happen is the people of this area to worship the god Pan and um, kind of appease the underworld essentially would be they would take goats. Um, Pan was kind of a half goat, half man god. They would take goats and they would dance with them and like make cuts on them. And it was just kind of a brutal, disgusting thing. And they would dance with them and like whirl them around in circles. So they were kind of dizzy and like couldn't really get a bearing on anything. And they would dance them. Uh, before the temple and then in front of the idol and then they would throw them into this like huge pit of water, this huge cave that they saw as the mouth of the underworld. And if the goat sank, they knew that the God had accepted their sacrifice. And if it floated, they'd go get another goat and do it again until the God accepted their sacrifice. Really weird and brutal and bizarre rituals happening here. Um, but that is what happened here at Benias or Caesarea Philippi. And um, it's just a really, really prominent place for worshiping the Roman pantheon and the Greek pantheon as well. And so with all this in mind, you continue on this story. Imagine Jesus and the disciples are continuing to walk on and they've passed this temple to Caesar. There's this incredible confession that Jesus is Christ, the son of God. And then uh, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, big statement, often very much confused. Um, What's going on here? So, there are three main theories as to what Jesus is saying when he says, 
Um, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The first is the Catholic tradition. They're saying that you are Peter, and on you I will build my church. Catholics would say that this is the institution of the papacy. Peter is being singled out as the ruler of the church at this point in time. And that's what Christ is saying, that he will build his church on the back of Peter um, because Peter is Petros and that means a type of rock. Okay, that's one theory. The other theory is that... um, the thing that the church is going to be built on is the proclamation that Peter just made. So Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He confesses this, this thing, his belief, his trust, his faith in him and who he is. And then Christ is saying, on this confession, the entire church will be built. So that's another theory. And then the last theory is that Jesus is looking at this huge cliff face and he is saying, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So which one is it? There are, I mean, man, you could go on endlessly, but I'm not going to. I think the first one is very clearly not it. Um, I don't believe in the papacy being any sort of authority. I don't believe that Peter was the first pope, um, primarily because I don't know. I mean, I mean, first of all, there's there's so many reasons. But first of all, uh, you've got Peter here now becoming the leader of the church while Christ is still on the earth. That to me just doesn't really make a lot of sense, um, especially when you know it says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And pretty quickly after this, Peter denies Christ three times, and Jesus has to bring him back into the fold. So um, I'm not saying the gates of hell prevailed against Peter. But it definitely seems like um, they did their best. You know, they they tried pretty hard, and it didn't seem like um, Peter stood up very well on his own without the help of Jesus. And so, I'm not really sure that from this we can say that um, Peter is now the new pope. I think that's a huge stretch, especially because the words here that are used are very very different. Um, Oh, oh, actually, sorry, there's actually a fourth one, and that is that Jesus is talking about himself. You are Petros, and on this rock, speaking of himself, he will build the church. Um, and I think that has a lot of merit as well. But the, you have to look in a language a little bit. Petros, this word here, um, it, it means like pebble, very small rock. The word that Christ uses here um, are, is, is a different word entirely. It sounds a little bit similar. But its meaning is entirely different. So Peter is Petros, which is a detached stone or boulder, something much smaller. And he's saying on this Petra, which is a feminine noun, meaning a solid or native rock rising up out of the earth, on this rock, a massive cliff, essentially, projecting out of the earth, that's what I'll build my church on. And so I think he's actually contrasting um who Peter is as opposed to what he's going to build his church on. So uh, I'm not saying anything bad about Peter here. Christ is not rebuking Peter at this moment, but uh, he's using a very distinctly different word. And we have to ask, what is he talking about? And could the landscape have something to do with this? I personally think absolutely it does. Um, and I think the other three uh, three scenarios or three 
views actually make a lot more sense. So just as a refresher, those are either that it is on the confession that Peter has just made, it is on Christ himself, or it is talking about this rock that is right in front of them. I think there's kind of a triple meaning going on here. Um, so the first thing is, yes, Peter made a huge confession, and I can't say that that is not something that the church has been, been built on. I mean, the statement, Christ is Lord, is, I mean, that's from the first century on has been a proclamation of Christians. You know, that is the thing that we have to believe in. In order to follow Christ, we have to believe that he is the son of God and that he died for our sins. And, that, you know, everything that comes with that uh, proclamation is essentially what my faith is built upon, what the church itself is built upon. And so that's not a wrong statement. Whether Christ meant that or not, I can't tell from the language itself, but I think at least logically it's it's a true statement, even if that's not exactly what Christ was meaning at the time. If it was, and he meant this triple meaning, then I think it's beautifully written, beautiful language, I mean, beautiful um use of words here by Christ to make all these things true um, at the same time. So was Christ talking about himself? Well, God is often called the rock, and I think this is more than fair to say. The the church is absolutely built um, on Christ himself, and you know, there, there's nothing else I could, I mean, it's Christ himself. And then the belief that he is Christ, he is Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the Christ. I think all of these things are, are true. So, um, the, the proclamation and Jesus being the son of God and him being who the church is going to be built off of. I think all of these things are true, but I think this landscape that we're looking at also has a huge part to play. Um, this huge cliff face rising out of the earth, this incredible, um, monument to paganism, this natural world formation being merged with human hands building this kind of temple complex thing. And Christ is making a very offensive statement here. And we miss this. Um, it says the gates of hell shall not prevail. What we miss is gates are never an offensive weapon. It's not like hell is sending their gates after the followers of Jesus Christ and they're going to tear us down. No, we are marching on the gates of hell, defeating it as followers of Jesus Christ with him as our head. And so I think that he's kind of using all these things and he's he's talking about himself. He's talking about Peter's belief in him and he's planting this flag right on this place where pagan worship is like, and not just pagan worship, but like evil. It's It's not like... They were just innocent people fooled into believing what their culture believed. It's like sick and twisted, bloody practices are happening here, um, really giving honor to a God of death and chaos and evil. And so, I mean, this is like, if you're going to go to a pagan place that represents like evil paganism, this is the place you're going to go. And Christ kind of plants his flag right at the foot of the mouth of this cave. And he's looking up and he says, Right here is where the church starts. And the gates of hell that they are standing in front of, literally they're standing in front of the place known as the gates of Hades, it's not going to prevail. We're going to continue on past here. And remember, they're also at the border of Israel, essentially. Past this point is like Decapolis and a lot of foreign nations. And so he's looking at this and saying, beyond this point, 
is basically given over to hell right now. It's given over to death. And we are the force for life, and we're about to start marching on their territory. And what happens? I mean, as soon as the church begins, as soon as it takes hold, as soon as Jesus Christ dies and people know they have salvation, the gospel message starts to go out to the world. It's spread and spread and spread throughout all the nations. Christ is making a very offensive statement. And I think he's using both the proclamation of Peter about himself, about you know him as God, saying that we are about to storm the castle of death and we're about to wipe it out. Now, fast forward to today, and I, I think that, um, you know, when we were here at Caesarea Philippi, we kind of got a little bit of a ref- refresher on all of this, and it, it was cool. But one thing that was said that I, I disagreed with was, well, and then Christ will return, and then we'll really take over the gates of hell. I don't think that's what's meant here. I mean, Jesus Christ is saying something very profound, and I don't think he meant like, okay, disciples, you go and spread the gospel and start at the very gates of hell itself and start preaching to those who are dead and bring them back to life through the life that I will give you after my resurrection and then stop for a while after you die and then I'll come back and kind of finish it up. I think we are meant to do this today, right now. Um, I'm not saying every single person needs to be going and preaching in the streets. I, I just don't think that's what he means. You don't see that example. You know, not every person the disciples came in contact with did they always like bring up, Hey, you should come to church with me, you know, but, but they found opportunity. They saw this as a very, very much a life and death situation. They looked at this horrible, evil place, probably asking why in the world did Jesus even bring us here? And, you know, they see Caesar worship and pan worship and horrible ritual sacrifice that was practiced here and waters gushing out of the abyss And they're sitting there thinking like, why are we here at the gates of hell? And Jesus says to them, because the war starts right here. We're not going to sit here in our own fortress of life and just live there. We have to go out recognizing that people are committing their lives to death and destruction. And we need to rescue them from that. And you have the power to do that through me, your leader and what I'm about to do. I think all of that is jam packed into these few verses and I mean, you can get it through study. Absolutely. Um, I'm not the first person to ever go to Caesarea Philippi. You know, I'm not the first person to ever have this thought. Um, our, even our guides who were not Christian by any means were like, yeah, it's pretty clear. He's not talking about Peter, especially when right after this, um, it's really interesting. Uh, so Jesus then tells them that he's got to suffer many things and the elders and chief priests and scribes are going to be against him and he's got to be killed. And then on the third day be raised and Peter rebukes him far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But then Jesus turns to him and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So it's like almost immediately the gates of hell are you know, not really being beaten down by Peter, Jesus is making an offensive statement and Peter's grabbing onto the arm of Christ saying, uh, let's not like quite go there yet. And Jesus is like, no, absolutely. We're going there. We are, I mean, he's got to go through death in order to give us life. And so this is a very serious thing to Christ to the point that he calls Peter, Satan, the enemy, um, an adversary. So no light thing at all. And uh, sometimes we can miss it if we don't understand the landscape and, and what we're looking at here. As far as the site itself goes, it kind of was beautiful. Not only was everybody in a good mood because it wasn't pouring rain and it wasn't, um, 
you know, just miserably hot. It was just overcast and pleasant, but the site itself, I mean, just beautiful red rocks coming out and kind of a pleasant walk through the whole, whole of the place. And we didn't really stop and see many of the ruins of the city itself. Um, but still just a, a very fascinating place to be at. And, uh, we probably spent no more than like an hour and a half there at the whole place. But yeah, well worth the trip. If you're ever in the area, definitely go and see this because even though it's like one place in scripture, it's a very motivating piece of scripture if you view it through this light and um, recognize not only what the disciples are seeing at this time, but what's happening culturally here and what Christ is proclaiming here on this spot that's basically given over to paganism and false gods. So really... Just a just a really interesting thing. Um, it was also interesting because it, um, just a kind of a side point. It did rain a little bit that day, just kind of sprinkled. And um, our guide told us that it always rains during the Feast of Tabernacles at least one time. And the Jewish people say that they have to expect rain because it's it's God telling them, okay, go and build tents for yourselves live there. They're not airtight or not uh, watertight. They're not, um, they're kind of open air structures. And then I'm going to spit on you a little bit um, just to kind of make it a little bit harder. So that's what the Jewish people say is it has to, it always has to rain during tabernacles because that's God spitting on us for our sins. I think that's a really morbid take, but I think it's just kind of a funny cultural thing that I uh, didn't know of before that I thought I'd share with you. So after Caesarea Philippi, we got back on the bus and we had lunch. Um, not much to report there. We had like a buffet lunch and it was kind of cool. Um, we, you know, it's, you're pulling over at like these hotels and these places that have lunch for their patrons, but just the way it worked out and the way that our, um, not only our guides, but the people that kind of structured and planned the trip worked it out. We were able to eat at these places that were really nice and kind of a reprieve like I've been on some tours in different countries where you basically get like a sack lunch on the bus and so this was not like that it was great food and um, I guess one last interesting thing about Caesarea Philippi um, I didn't have this guide on this tour I was still uh, with Oren at this point but Idan the former guide that I'd had for the the pre-feast tour he was with a few of my friends and they came and sat with me at lunch and they said he believes that this is the spot that Abraham covenanted with God. And for him, that makes it important because um, when Jesus is kind of making this offensive statement, which he fully believes Jesus was doing at this time, um, he's kind of reclaiming land that was original land that, you know, it meant something. It was, it was important. This is where Abraham covenanted with God and this was God's land. And so it had been overrun by these pagan gods and God was kind of kicking them out at this spot. That's what Jesus Christ is trying to symbolize. Now, I'm not sure I believe that Abraham covenanted with God here. Um, there's also evidence that maybe he did it at Mount Hermon or Hermon, as they say in Israel, you got to get that in there. They're really good at that. Um, I think that's, maybe more likely, but we don't really know either way. It's just an interesting thing to realize that there are archaeologists and biblical scholars that are looking at these places and looking at what Jesus is doing and seeing reflections back to the Old Testament, which, you know, these are 
These are people, our guides were people that were familiar with the New Testament because they're touring around places that are very significant to the New Testament, though they don't believe it spiritually speaking. If they believed any of it, any of the Bible, it was primarily Old Testament. Um, I think Oren was probably the more religious of the guides that we had, just based on the conversation we had uh, back and forth. But we can talk about that at a different time. Uh, but even he was like, not really a new Testament guy specifically, but they're still reading it and seeing connection, which I think is cool. Um, Paul talks about this a lot. And when he talks about the Jewish people, he's like, yeah, I mean, they should, of all people, they're the ones that should get it because they have the whole old Testament that is so deeply ingrained into their culture and their nation. And yet they miss it. Um, but he also says that God doesn't leave himself without a witness when he talks about, the Gentile people at Athens. So uh, I think the same thing is true of the Jewish people and there can be really good dialogue back and forth about New Testament and Old Testament things that kind of do connect, whether you agree or not. So that was just something the guide said that I thought was interesting. I've not been able to find a lot of support from that um, on any sources I've looked at online or in any books, but for what it's worth, that's something that he speculated about. So after Caesarea Philippi, after Philippi, after Caesarea Philippi, and after lunch, we then traveled to Dan, which um, not necessarily the tribe of Dan; it's a city of Dan. Um, but this is also incredibly far north, not very far from Caesarea Philippi at all. And I got kind of confused when we were there because, like, why do you have this tribe of Dan and this city of Dan? Um, there, it's the same name. How, how did we get this city all the way up in tribally? What would have been known as like Naphtali or some people say Naphtali or Naphtali depends on what you say. I say Naphtali, although I'm probably wrong, but essentially what happened here, according to historians and the historical record is that Dan, which was uh, more in the south of Israel, right along the Mediterranean, was kind of tired of getting overtaken and attacked by the Philistines, and so they moved up. Uh, it says, I'm looking here at the Jewish Agency for Israel, it says here on their site on ancient Dan, uh, they rebuilt the town and settled there, and they named the town Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was Israel's son. Originally, however, the name of the town was Laish. So you can see this L-A-I-S-H. You can see this in Judges 18. And uh, a lot of really important archaeological things happened here. Um, it's not just an important piece of biblical history. It's not only one of the more northern, I mean, the most northern city in biblical Israel. Uh, again, that Dan to Beersheba concept. But it is... Uh, also, a place where we've found some incredible archaeological discoveries, one of which I'll mention now and another I'll mention um, more at the end when we get through it in our walk through the site. And that is, uh, the first one I'm going to mention is a tablet. Um, it's an inscription of Hazael, king of Damascus, and it's boasting of his victory over the king of Israel of the house of David. So this is the first time that house of David was discovered outside of the biblical text. So that's pretty huge, especially because David, 
Um, some people think he was like a mythical king. Like he didn't really exist. Just looking at some of his exploits and some of the things he did in his life, they're like, yeah, he's like the ideal king. And even the ones that say he exists or he did exist, um, often want to downplay some of his successes and accomplishments as just kind of the, um, uh, I don't know, like the trumping up of their king, I guess, like a lot of other pagan nations did. But here, you can see that not only was David, in fact, a historical king, but he must have been a pretty great king because this inscription is talking, it's like boasting of a victory over Israel of the house of David. And you wouldn't list, you know, some weakling that only says he was great. You list someone who is great to make yourself great if you've defeated them in battle. And so this is a really big deal. And this we saw this tablet inside the Jerusalem Museum, which was really cool. And I actually just saw a reel about it on Instagram. Um, Frank Turek was at the Israel Museum, and he was covering this, this tablet. It's just this big square block. But on it, it does say House of David, which is really, really cool. Now, obviously, we didn't see that when we were there because, like I said, it's in the, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Um but we did see some other really cool things that they couldn't take down and put in a museum. So the first thing when we got there was we had a little bit of a walk um, to get from the entrance of this national park area to the um, primary site, which is, I mean, the, the main part of Tel Dan, when you go and see this, is the altar that they believe um, was the pagan altar. So, so when... Um, Israel and Judah split up. The king of Israel set up um, basically um, false worship at Dan and Bethel. And so kind of the northern region of his territory and the southern region so that people could worship. They didn't have to go to one localized site. He was afraid they would continue to go to Jerusalem as God commanded and he didn't want that to happen. And so he set up kind of many temples, many places of worship where they could come and, and keep the holy days. So it's like they were trying to worship the real God, but in a way that he didn't command them to do. God did not like this. And this is, I mean, it's a big deal that these things still exist, that you can go and see not only where these things happen, but remnants of the structures that were there at this time. And so this was the main thing we went there to see. And you got to take a little bit of a walk through some nature to get there. And it really was beautiful. Um, we did see the headwaters of the Jordan, took some pictures of that, a really vegetative area. There's like a lot of um, plants there and a lot of trees, very green compared to a lot of places we'd seen up to this point. So that was kind of refreshing. Um, reminded me of honestly kind of walking through um, a park in America in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, just seeing the headwaters of the Jordan was, was really neat. I like water in general, just seeing it anywhere is great. Um, but this water just had some pretty cool significance and it was neat too. Like I'm seeing this as like, wow, this is almost like biblical water, but the people that are here are just like, they're going to their parks, you know, they're, they're taking the time out of their day to go and, um, maybe they're keeping the feast and they're just celebrating their time and enjoying time as a family. So they're out together. Um, and some of them, you'd, you'd walk past the water 
and some of them would just go down into it and like splash around and their kids would play in it. And I thought that was really cool. Um, cause something to me as a tourist, I'm like, wow, look at how cool that is. The kids are like, Oh, great water. Let me jump in it. And that it just kind of, um, in a way it kind of simplified the landscape for me. Um, it didn't make it nothing or didn't make it common. It was still really cool to see, but it reminded me that this is like a functioning piece of history. This, this water here and this land and uh, even the parks themselves, I'm seeing historical, archaeological, significant for the Bible places. And they're seeing like, oh, yeah, this is like our, our national heritage. And so it's just a different lens to see it through. And when we got there to um, the entrance of Tel Dan, the entrance of this ancient city, um, or Laish, as it was known um, prior to being Dan, it's really, really reconstructed. So um, you can tell, like it's the walls are incredibly tall, way taller than they would than they would be um, at just a normal archaeological site. So they've done a fair amount of reconstruction here, because when they first found it, it was pretty, you know, a lot more rubble. It, it wasn't as quite as clean. But they've built this one up into a much nicer park. And so on one hand, that's great because you can see what it would have looked like at the time. And on the other hand, it's not as great because you're not sure which parts are original and which which parts they've added to it. I personally appreciated seeing how it would have looked at the time um, of the Old Testament. So I thought that was really neat. And some places are less built up than others. So you can kind of differentiate between some of them. But these walls are very tall. And it, I mean, it's, it is significant to think that, first of all, it's significant to think they built it in the first place. I'm like, wow, looking at how tall these walls are, that's definitely... You know, if I'm going to war against that and have to climb over this wall, that's an impressive feat. But also these things are heavy. Like these stones that make up the wall are, you know, hundreds of pounds. And so at first I felt bad for the ancient people that had to do it. And then I thought of the archaeologists that had to reconstruct all this because they really do a good job. But they've got to do this too. And sure, they've got machinery and stuff. But um, a lot of it, I think, is done. You can just kind of tell. Some of it just seems a little bit more done by hand. And um, it would have been a backbreaking work for sure. And so we're walking through the streets of this ancient city, very squared off, like very much this is, these are the walls and these are the buildings. You can kind of just tell where things are. They kind of just rise up right out of the landscape and have sharp corners and edges on them, unlike a lot of other places that are a little bit more torn down with age. And we walk through the city and it's kind of just a straight shot up. Like we're going up and up and up throughout this city to get to the highest point in the whole place, which is where this altar would have been built. And when we get there, um, it kind of opens up. I was walking kind of by myself the whole time, just trying to listen to the guide. But also it was it was fairly steep and a decent ways off. So, um, you know, whenever that happens, I don't mind the walk. I kind of enjoy it, but I don't want to make small talk while I'm doing it. I just kind of want to focus on breathing and not dying and listening and maintaining a positive attitude. So I was walking by myself until we got um, to the main altar at the top. And when we got there, there's like a steel cage structure um, that it's not like restrictive. It's kind of more just marking the area. So you can walk right up to it. But everyone kind of thought this was the altar where the calves would have been, like the the golden calves, because he set up two calves at Dan and Bethel. 
Um, but really, this would have been more like the temple complex. And I hadn't realized that he had, you know, it says he built an altar, Jeroboam, the king of Israel. It says he built an altar here, but I didn't really have a concept for what that looked like. And so we're looking at this steel cage structure with stones on the inside and the outside of it that's kind of marked off by this steel cage and everyone's thinking okay this is the altar where the the calves would have been and that's cool except for there's a much higher place just a little farther up and i'm thinking why in the world would this be the altar when there's a higher place up it seems like they would have put it in the highest spot in accordance with essentially what they did with pagan gods and um as we're there for a while looking at this and like hearing about it and people are asking questions, I just decided to go up to the highest spot and there's actually stairs leading up to it. And when you get up there, you realize, oh, okay. And you, you kind of turn around and look down at this stone structure that's down on the ground and it looks a lot like what a temple would look like. And so what probably happened is this is on the ground, you almost have a faux holy place and then up higher you have what would have been kind of a, a pagan holy of holies where they would have put um, in, in Jerusalem at the temple, that's where they would have put the Ark of the Covenant and all the things that were in that. And um, there would have been incense and the priest only goes in there once a year. But here, that's where they probably would have put the golden calf inside this fake holy of holies um, higher up on the hill. But very few people went up there and I'm not sure why, but the few people that did when we were up there including some that knew what they were talking about, were like, yeah, this is where the golden calf would have been past this line. And so that was neat to see because from the ground, you just see this square stone structure and you think, okay, an altar. They must have just built an altar here. And I guess this is what it looked like. But from up high on those stairs, it's like, no, he was trying to reconstruct a mini version of the temple. So, I mean, and you get that in the story, right? He's trying to make sure that Israel doesn't go down to Jerusalem. Um, he wants to keep them there. And so he's going to keep as much as possible um, the same. And you can see this in, in the construction of the site. So that was that was really neat, I thought. And I took some pictures from up above. Uh, it's a really wide open area. They could have fit a good amount of people here. Um, I can't imagine it being packed, but um, you can like I don't know. There, there is a decent amount of space and maybe there's more trees around it that wouldn't have been there. Uh, so maybe there's even more of a wide open space that they would have worshiped at and gathered at because even in Jerusalem, not everybody's going inside the Holy of Holies, obviously, but they're also not even going inside the Holy place. They're in the outer courtyard as these temple proceedings are taking place. So not everyone necessarily has to be up here on this mountain, uh, but there would have been a fair amount of people up here outside of this temple complex. And so I thought this was uh, just fascinating to see a really awesome connection from a really, really ancient place. And um, yeah, so that's what we saw there. Then as we moved on from the altar area, we went to what is known as the gates of the city or the gates of Dan. And um, it's really just incredible. The gates of Laish, actually, L-A-I-S-H, again, if you want to look it up in your scriptures. But what we have here is a stone mud brick building. Kind of, it's probably, you can't get right up next to it. It's very old, very fragile. And so they have like it, it barred off. Um, and you, you can see it from probably 
200 feet away or so. Like it's, it's a decent, you know, throw back from where you can actually stand at, but you can see these gates and it's covered by this like white, um, I don't want to say a tarp because it's not a tarp, but they've basically built a structure over top of it so that it's protected from the elements. And it's this arched gate and you can see stairs leading up to it. And um, this arch is so incredibly old. People often say the Romans invented the arch, but this arch goes way, 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 way back to Abraham's time. And that's actually why it's called um, the Abraham gate. Because what probably happened when Lot was taken... And Abraham gathered his servants and went chasing after him to go and rescue him. It says he chased them all the way up to Dan. And it's very, very likely that he would have been at Dan and then seen these gates or even gone through these gates into the city of Laish. And um, Dan, obviously, when it says Dan, that's a later addition from editors knowing that the city, the name of the city had changed. But it's very likely that this gate... It definitely dates all the way back to Abraham's time, but it's very likely that he would have seen this arch. And so for some reason, this was um, impressive to me, not just because it was so old, but for me, like seeing a thing that Jesus had seen and trying to picture it through his eyes was incredible um, because he is God that came to earth. I mean, that was just a huge thing. Abraham, though, is just like ancient upon ancient. You know, like this goes back so much farther. And so it almost had as much gravity to me as um, seeing something that Jesus had seen, not because Abraham is greater than Jesus, but because it's so much older. And to be able to look through time at something that Abraham might have seen is just, it's just a really, really amazing thing. So I thought that was fantastic. After this, we had a brief kind of walk back down the hill. Um, The scenery here was absolutely stunning. We could see um, the mountains of Syria in the distance, a lot of beautiful greenery. The sky was like opening up and wasn't as hazy. And we got back on the bus. So after Tel Dan, we went and there was a little bit of miscommunication. We were supposed to go to the border between Israel and Syria, but our guides understood it as something totally different. So we went to this place where there was a memorial um, that had to do with the Six-Day War, and there's this um, plaque there. I mean, it was an old bunker, honestly, where, I mean, you can see like where they set up, uh, like where, where tanks would have been, where cannons were, where people would have hidden out, where guns were mounted. Um, there's like metal barriers like you'd see uh, in ancient war movies and it's like all cement and here they've built this uh, memorial to people who died here in this company and there's rocks placed on the memorial which I thought was really cool it's a very Jewish thing Um, you see it in the end of Schindler's List people place rocks on the tomb of Schindler out of respect for what he did and this has to do with um, Jewish understanding of the old testament where you know you're not going to carve something in their honor you're not going to like worship the dead in any way but this is a way that you can honor them without doing something that is you know hearkening back to some paganism so 
um, on a lot of Jewish tombs, you might see rocks just placed on the, the rock slab itself. And so that's what you see here. And there's all these names written in Hebrew. And we were there and they, they were explaining to us that like when people die in Israel, it's a really big deal because they're a small, kind of a small group and, and very community oriented. So um, losing a hundred people to them is not a small thing. Like everyone knows someone who died in the six days war. And in any conflict that happens in Israel, it's, you can almost like guarantee that if you ask someone, they either know someone who died or know someone who was related to someone who died. And so we really got a sense for not only the severity of some of the conflict that's been going on for the past few years, but also the interconnectedness of Israel. And it, it really, even though it was a mistake that we went here instead of the border between Israel and Syria, um, it really kind of connected my heart to the Israeli people and was very telling for what would happen at the end of our trip with the bombing by Hamas. And you, you could just see it on the faces of our guides. We'll get into more of that um, when the day comes as, as we go through the tour. But after this, they did uh, connect you know, they kind of reconnected with the guides, the people that were leading the trip. And they, they just said, Hey, we wanted to go to the border between Israel and Syria and see that. And so the guides, they were a little upset because the bus drivers work a certain number of hours and they're not really supposed to go beyond that. They're contracted, but the people that were planning the trip said, we'll make it right. You know, it, I'm sorry that this happened, this, this, this miscommunication, but we'll make it right. In the end, I felt bad for the people leading the trip and for our guides and bus drivers, but I was so glad we got to see both because it, it really was cool to see this memorial to such horrible things that had happened in Israel's past. Um, after this, we, we drove for quite a long way to the border um, between Israel and Syria. And really, there wasn't a lot to see here. We could see like um, a UN base in between. There's like some white buildings off in the distance. We were only like a mile between Israel and Syria. And this was the closest you could get. And they even told us like seven years prior to this moment, you could not get here. You would be shot at by Syrians. And so big deal that we were there, you know, and conflict kind of erupts and then can reside really quickly in this area. So it's, it's kind of tough to know. And then, like I said, days later, you've got Hamas attacking Israel and then even like Lebanon and Syria um, had some little aggression happening between their borders. So I bet right now, if I went back, I could not get to this spot. So it was really cool to be able to see while I could. Um, and like I said, there wasn't a lot to see here. It was just look over. There's the fence right there. This is the closest you're going to get to Syria while you're here. Um, so that was, that was great to see as well. After that, all we did was drive back home and we, this was going to be our last full day in the Galilee region. And I was sad to go because it was just a beautiful area. I really loved our hotel there. I was nervous for the tightly cramped spaces of Jerusalem that we'd be entering the next day. Um, but I was also very excited. You know, this is Jerusalem. We're going up to the feast to keep the feast in Jerusalem. And um, this was something that, you know, not a lot of people get to say they've done. So it was awesome to be, able to be able to follow in the footsteps of so many people who have done that in all of Israel's history. And it really, um, you know, through faith, I, I connect myself to Israel, not because I am a citizen of that, that national place, but in many ways, the people that um, lived in this nation are my people because they're, they're following the law of God. And here I am following in their footsteps, trying to also follow the law of God. Not that I think you have to keep the feast in Israel. 
Um, that could be talked about another time. I think I've talked about it in the episode I have about the Feast of Tabernacles. But even so, just seeing, um, just being able to keep God's feast in his land and go up to Jerusalem myself was a really unique experience that I, I was very excited for, despite some of my nerves surrounding it. So uh, next time we'll get into that. Um, we did still in this area, we went to one last place uh, the next day. So the next morning was like taking off from our hotel, our hotel. We went to uh, Bet Shean, which is incredible. I can't wait to tell you about that. And then from there, we went on to Jerusalem. So quite a long drive. So we'll go through fewer places next time, but I might slow it down just a little bit. Um, we'll see how it goes. But that's all we have for day eight. Um, this was our last, like I said, our last full day in the Galilee region. And we saw so many cool things. So thank you guys very much for listening. And until next time, I just hope you are excited about the nation of Israel and some of the history there. I hope I'm helping you to read your Bibles in new light. We went through a little more scripture today, so um, hopefully that was um, a valuable practice as well. And I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks again.